I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the New World of Work. Nobody can study this world of the new economy at its middle reaches and not be enraged. People are treated abusively. They have no security. Employers are disloyal to them. It's a system that, as we all know, generates vast inequalities of wealth. It's unjust. That's American sociologist Richard Sennett. During the last 10 years, he's published three books examining the changes that have recently taken place in the way people work. The Corrosion of Character, Respect in a World of Inequality, and The Culture of the New Capitalism. As you will have gathered, he doesn't think much of the new economic order. In fact, he thinks it deprives those who work in it of virtually every essential of a decent life. Relations of loyalty and mutual respect between people, the opportunity to feel useful and take pride in one's work, and the sense that one's working life comprises a story that makes some sense. In this Ideas program, David Cayley concludes his profile of Richard Sennett with a look at Sennett's analysis of the new capitalism. He'll also look back to the formative experiences that shaped Sennett's sociology. Here's David Cayley. As a young man, Richard Sennett did not intend to become a scholar. His first love, and his great gift, was music. And by the time he was 15, he was already composing his own pieces and giving public performances as a cellist. He turned to university life and the study of sociology, only after wear and tear on his left hand ended any hope of a performing career when he was in his early 20s. But music, he says, continued to be the lens through which he looked at society. We talked about this when I interviewed him recently at his home in Greenwich Village, a short walk from his longtime academic home at New York University. And he told me that one of the things he's retained from his years as a working musician is an image of the orchestra as an ideal society in which unequal parts are each indispensable to the whole. When an orchestra works together, there are inequalities not just of talent, but of what people are actually doing. The triangle is, you know, not quite at the level of complexity of the violin. But it doesn't matter, because you can't play a Mahler symphony without feeling like you're one collective whole. And it's been in, that's been in my sociological writing, a kind of guiding image about kind of a good kind of social life, that whatever the differences of talent or role that people are accorded, that they have that sense of being necessary to each other. And um, that's what my book about respect in a world of inequality is about, why we don't have that feeling and, you know, what the practical consequences are in society of not having it. In an orchestra, the orchestra plays badly. And social life, the same thing, I believe, is true. It's very hard to keep a collective enterprise going if what you're emphasizing are the differences between people and, and ability or the, their importance of role. And it's something I learned when I became a sociologist also, or relearned, I should say, 
by studying work organizations in Japan. Japanese much less status conscious in a way than their Western peers. Everybody's involved. They have talks on the shop floor of the Toyota plant in which, you know, low level, you know, workmen are are talking back to high level managers. And the managers not only take it, they recognize the need to do it if they're gonna make good quality cars, you know. It's a kind of it seems something in our context, the kind of Western capitalist context, like a kind of impossible dream. But uh, I think not. I mean, I think it's a different way of understanding the co collective nature of, of doing work. And for me, that, you know, again, seemed only natural because of this other career I'd had. This other career in music ended, as I said earlier, with an injury that left Richard Sennett unable to play. He took up the study of sociology at Harvard. One of his inspirations there was David Reisman, the author of The Lonely Crowd, published in 1953 and one of the most celebrated and widely read works of sociology of its time. Reisman taught his young student a crucial lesson. What I learned from him is that you can do sociology simply by talking to people. <laughs> amazing. This may seem an amazing statement to you. Any social encounter was for him something to think about. He once wrote a wonderful essay on cocktail parties. He wrote uh, an essay on bus stops. Uh, his famous book, The Lonely Crowd, is filled with incident from everyday life. He was a wonderful interviewer. He was a very nervous man, and often it, it conveyed it, he was uh, shaking with nerves constantly. But he was one of those people that you tried to put at their ease, you know, by, by talking, just because you felt that at any moment he might keel over from a heart attack. It's a very odd thing to explain. But he was a great interviewer. And he'd understood something that most sociologists of his time absolutely rejected, which is that ordinary life is a source of social understanding. His friends, uh, like Everett Hughes, understood it as well. They were all marginalized. I mean, sociologists then believed in counting. They believed that what we do is science, that results could be reproducible, all of this, you know, positive garbage. I remember him once saying to me, there is no day in your life when you don't do sociology. You talk to other people, you try and make sense of what they say, why they say it. You are constantly in practice. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? He didn't see any divide between what sociologists do and what novelists did in the 19th century. And indeed, you know, when Lionel Trilling reviewed The Lonely Crowd, he said, if sociology becomes like this, sociologists will take over the function of the great 19th century novels like Dickens and Tolstoy. It's a wonderful compliment, isn't it? Richard Sennett appreciated his apprenticeship with David Reisman, and also with the psychoanalyst Eric Erickson, another mentor and Harvard luminary of the time. But Harvard itself, he didn't care for. Sennett, 
a native of Chicago, had come from a middle-class family, but an unusual one. His father had left the family when he was an infant. His mother, a writer and social worker, had been a communist, one of several in the family, and after the war, her political history had made it difficult for her to find work. So, in 1946, she and young Richard had moved into subsidized housing at a place called Cabrini Green, the first housing project in the United States to mix whites and blacks. They lived there for eight years. It was a progressive experiment, and not yet the kind of war zone many American housing projects including Cabrini-Green, later became, but living there still carried the painful mark of poverty and dependency. And this background, along with his experience of a musical world where talent was what counted, produced a deep-seated aversion to what seemed to him an atmosphere of extraordinary complacency. I hated the snobbism and self-satisfaction of Harvard, which was, um, was terrible in those days. Just awful. The kind of self-indulgence of it. I just thought it was appalling. I, I'll give you an instance of this. You know, in those days, if you were caught with drugs, uh, soft drugs, marijuana, in Massachusetts, the pains for this were extremely uh, vigorous, shall we say. Uh, when a Harvard student was caught with drugs, uh, he or she was sent for counseling rather than facing the police. And it seemed to me a mass of students who had had that kind of cocooning and protection all their lives. We always say America is a classless society, but you could spend two minutes in a place like Harvard in the 1960s and you would know whoever said this you know, had been asleep for, <laughs> uh, for most of his or her life. It was appalling to me. So, you know, for me it was a balance. I was, I was learning from Reisman and Erickson, who were extremely generous to me, but um, this was my first real exposure to sort of the American privilege, and in many cases not even meritocratic privilege, you know. Many of the people who were there, what, are, what were then called legacies, a legacy is your daddy was rich, he went here, and perhaps if you go here as well, you'll get more money. So it was, a very, it was a, an unsympathetic place, and, and I left as soon as I could. Despite his dislike of Harvard, Richard Sennett's years there were extremely productive. In 1970, he published The Uses of Disorder, the book that announced his arrival as a writer on cities and public life. And in 1972 came The Hidden Injuries of Class, his first book on work and its consequences. It was jointly researched and written with another young sociologist named Jonathan Cobb. Well, this was a book that really came straight out of both my own life and my years with David Reisman, which was a project to understand 
the ways in which working class people trying to make sense of their place in American life at a time when old socialist nostrums about working class consciousness seemed out of date. And it had a very specific setting, which was, this was the period in the late 1960s, early 70s, when the black struggles in the United States had provoked what seemed to be a right-wing reaction among white working class people. And the interpretation of this was that this was just strict class conflict, whites feeling challenged by blacks, that these people had been welfare cheats and never deserved what they had. Uh, why were they getting all this attention? So this seemed very superficial to me. And what we did is we went to interview in depth a hundred families in working class parts of Boston. And what we found was people did harbor very strong feelings about blacks, they were very negative, but that the real drama that was going on in these families was how the generations of these working class people related to each other. Many of these people were, had children who were going to junior college or to university for the first time. The parents had spent all their lives you know, hoping for this, and when the event occurred, as their children became more middle class, the parents felt very displaced. It was an amazing study for me to do this because I grew up in a milieu of blacks. You know, these were not my enemies. This was, this was my childhood world. Um, these white working class people were in some way strangers to me in a way that, you know, the black poor were not. But I found something deeply satisfying about this. My urban work is rather abstract, you know, sort of rather spiritual, if you like. And this was hands-on discussion with people who are in a bind about how to deal with the problem of class in America. You know, the Americans always lie to themselves by saying that there is no class, there are differences in money, but there are really no differences in class in the United States. And this is absolute garbage, as I think everybody knows. But what those class differences between the working class and middle class were was rather more obscure. The single issue that seemed to revolve around this was the notion of respect. Being respected as a person, even though you might not have much education, uh, you weren't um, sophisticated, you did menial labor and so on. The book is called The Hidden Injuries of Class. And presumably the hiddenness has to do with the hiddenness of class. What no. happens to people specifically in, in a, a class society that denies class? Well, what it does is that when, for instance, people feel that their kids are leaving them and being upwardly socially mobile, that their parents' years of sacrifice are sort of betrayed in a way by the distance. It's something people don't talk about much. We were digging out feelings, and I think it was only because we were such young kids talking to people in their 40s and 50s. We were naive, and 
that we were digging out things that people didn't like to talk about with each other. For example? Uh, well, for example, I did some interviews with people who were street sweepers in Boston. And uh, I was asking, so tell me about, you know, how have things changed in, in your, your life? And you get on the surface, oh, things are great. You know, we got a wonderful house in the you know, we bought part of a three-decker and so on. And those, those are real gains. And then you talk long enough and people feel, well, you know, they really regret somehow that they didn't take more risks, that they felt that they were no one, just pieces of the woodwork, you know, that they, they couldn't really do something like go to night school themselves, that they, people would look down on them. And feelings of shame very, very strong among American working-class people for being just ordinary. People don't like to talk about that very much, you know? Uh, they get very angry at liberal elitists because it only makes them feel more ashamed in a way. There's people who can understand you, but you're not supposed to be under, able to understand them, one man once said to me. So, you know, when you get a class situation like that, you know, people don't wear their hearts in their sleeves like that. It takes a lot of digging. And, and as I say, because we were kids and we were sort of nice kids and we weren't liberal elitists, a lot of this would eventually surface. It's just feeling that sort of not to make it in America had meant that people don't really... It's not that people look down on them in the sense of active contempt, but they just weren't noticed. They just didn't register to middle-class people. I asked, for instance, I did another set of studies of, of waitresses, middle-aged waitresses, about just what it was, you know, what their days were like. And I, I actually went and washed dishes so I could see them at work a couple of weeks. And little th I began to see why little things really got to them. They said, businessmen never thank you unless they want to pick you up. You know, there's no notion that somebody had served them. It was just a function, you know, food went on the table and so on. They were invisible. They were just treated as though they were in invisible. That's what that hidden thing is. You know, dealing with those emotions is something you can get angry about, but it also eats into you a bit, you know. One of the things that really interested me was the idea um, that that there's less consideration, less respect than in a in an explicit hierarchical. and open hierarch and openly hierarchical society. This is a terrible irony. It is a terrible, terrible irony that in societies where things are much more manifest, the relationship between uh, the dominant and the subordinate is, can be managed more by ritual. When you don't have that explicitness, then everything gets hidden below the surface. The inequalities are still there, but nobody is talking about them. And the other thing about very hierarchical societies is that that tends to be much more impersonal. In... Um, the traditional French working class, for instance, people, you know, they feel they're born into it, it's their lot, 
they're going to make a life within it, and so on. It doesn't have much to do with them. With the people I was interviewing, who had had grown up after you know the Second World War, the time of prosperity, and so on, where they were in society seemed much more to have to do with them. Were they intelligent? Were they driven? You know, did they have ambition? Did they have what it takes? It's much more the world of Willie Loman than it is of you know Pierre, the communist, but <laughs> you know the communist machinist who. You know, feels a sense of himself as an individual that's apart from his class, and this is a ter- it's a terrible paradox, sociologically, that inexplicit inequality, as I call it, is is internalized. If everybody is is treated sort of the same culturally, as though they all could make something of themselves, then if you lower down the system, it's something that has to do with you rather than economic circumstance. And that's a real killer. Uh, it, it fed into the notion of racism with the people that I interviewed, because this was a time in which resources being poured into, you know, black um, poverty areas of cities. They were getting all this recognition as though their sufferings were legit. But you, you poor schlump, you're just a waitress, you know, serving uh, lunch in the financial district of, of Boston, you know. Nobody is paying any attention to you. And it was a lightning rod. It isn't really racism. It's just the notion that the upper middle class and upper class, this kind of bleeding heart liberal, doesn't, is quite selective about who gets to enjoy his or her attentions. So recognition is the recognition is, is the, the key, the key, and that's where that paradox of implicit hierarchy or repressed hierarchy gets to really the killer. You're listening to Ideas in Canada on CBC Radio One across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio, and around the world on cbc.ca. Today's program concludes our profile of American sociologist Richard Sennett. It's presented by David Cayley. The hidden injuries of class has remained an influential and often cited text since its publication. Richard Sennett would return to some of its themes in a book called Authority, published in 1980. But during much of the 1970s and 80s, he was concerned with his other great subject, the history of cities and public life. Then, increasingly, he began to notice that dramatic changes were underway in the terms on which people were employed. The one thing I had assumed about these people's lives is that their economic system in which they worked, strong unions, lifelong employment, sort of national corporations, that that kind of capitalism was there for good. And in the late 80s and early 90s, it became clear that this capitalism was changing. And I decided to go back 
to really put some time into interviewing, again, people who had to work in this changing capitalism. And I, I decided I was going to use the same tools I'd used before, you know, depth interviews, that I would do most of them myself, but that I would make one change, which is I would look at people in the lower middle class who were working in what was called then the new economy. We don't tend to use that word anymore. People working in globalized firms, people worked in high-tech firms, provided services in cities and so on. These would be programmers, not program designers, but people were actually writing code, people who worked in back offices and accounting firms. Not glitz, but you know, people who had training, but were not going to be part of the dominant elite in this uh, new economy. And I've spent the last 15 years of my life doing this in one form, writing about this in one form or another and doing research. I went everywhere from Silicon Valley to interviewing nurses in London. I interviewed people in accounting back offices in New York and so on. And I focused, moreover, on people who are in early middle age, in their 30s. So this has been in my life a big contrast between then and now because I'm, uh, it, you know, I've had to learn more about what this kind of capitalism is about and deal, as it were, with the children of the people that I had, metaphorically, with the children of the people that I had interviewed in Boston. And this has produced three books. It's produced a book called The Corrosion of Character, which is about work itself in the private realm, a book called Respect in a World of Inequality, which is more focused on public service workers, and then a more, rather more general book called The Culture of the New Capitalism. In these three books, Richard Sennett concentrated on what the new economic order means to the people who must live on its terms. What particularly struck him was the difficulty his subjects had in making sense of their working lives. The workers he had interviewed in Boston in the 1960s and 70s, whatever their dissatisfactions, could at least weave a story out of their long and stable employment. The new economy offered only a series of disconnected episodes. The organization is different. It's short-term in its focus. The terms of reference are that work is no longer about a kind of lifelong track career. There are few, very few rewards for long-term service in this new economy, whereas that was the carrot always held out to people in organizations 35 years ago, and they had unions to back it up. You know, These are people who don't want to join unions. They're much more individualized, at least in the US. Uh, in the private sector. Uh, they're very hard to organize. They look at work as a series of jobs and tasks because that's how the work is organized. There's much less assertion of authority in the workplace than as people are left in these jobs often to do them on their own. There isn't a boss who is saying, 
here's how to do it, here's how I want you to do it. You're sort of left on your own devices. Another change is the growth of, what, and this more structural thing, is growth of what are called internal markets, where you have a firm, instead of a division of labor where everybody's doing their, their bit, you know, you have competition between teams as to who can do a piece of work the fastest, the most efficiently. And these t tend to be winner-take-all markets, so that the team that gets the job done first gets lots of rewards and the other teams are broken up, people get fired and so on. That's very common in, in high-tech industry. But the result of this is that you have a breakdown of work as a narrative. It goes through people's lives and becomes very episodic in years and in terms of the content. And that's what we've been focusing on with this, how to understand what work means to people when the structures to create a work narrative fragment. The dimension in which the people he talked to experienced this fragmentation is time, Richard Sennett says. For them, time had ceased to hang together and it had become increasingly scarce. Many of the people I talked to were working, all found with commuting, were working putting in 12 and a half to 13 hours a day. Never saw their children. In one way, the time is absolute, you know. They're spending a lot of time on these jobs, which are themselves very elusive. They're working very hard. The stress levels are very high. Back offices of these uh, accounting firms that we we talked to, these people lived in fear of the the Indian accountant, and the only way that they could deal with you know the work being sent to India was by working harder, being more productive here, so that the bosses wouldn't send the work out to these much more lowly paid workers who did it just as well. So you get a kind of the equivalent of an industrial speed up. You know, you're doing more, you're more productive, but you're getting not very much reward for it. The anxiety level in these back offices was high, you know, and this was something beyond people's control. They kept thinking about what could I do to get off this treadmill? And it's not evident in this capitalism what they can do. So that's, you know, that's the contrast between then and now. The then, I think the issue was status and recognition. And the issue now, the sociological issue, is time. Richard Sennett alludes here to the fear the accountants felt of their bosses. But he also remarked earlier that there is now little overt expression of authority in the workplace that people are commonly left to organize their tasks and their time in their own way. This apparent contradiction goes to the heart of Senate's view of the new capitalism. Flexible work regimes have decentralized certain kinds of authority and created the appearance of greater equality in the workplace. But the move to looser, less hierarchical work organizations has also given much greater power to the handful of managers who are actually in control. Concentration without centralization, another writer on the new economy calls it. 
This is one of many surprising differences that Richard Sennett notes between the world of today and the world in which he first interviewed American workers 40 years ago. But he did find one striking continuity, he says. Unhappy workers still tend to blame scapegoats rather than facing the real source of their troubles. Once, the white working class displaced its resentment onto blacks. Today, the target is more likely to be immigrants. Again, as in the 70s with black workers, a lot of the resentments against immigrant workers are ways of really dealing with another issue, which is that these today, which is that these institutions are not frameworks for, for sustaining a work life. And I've often th thought that the, there is a logic to the seeming irrationality of saying that, that a Mexican gardener is going to take away my job if I'm a computer programmer. It's nonsense. There is no threat to the auto worker in Michigan if somebody crosses the Mexican border. But there is a logic to it because that kind of looseness in the work economy, where people can casually come in and do work, flip it around, people are treated, many of these middle-class workers, as though they're no more than casual laborers. There is a logic to it. It's not a very nice logic, but these are people who are being casualized. Richard Sennett's interviews with people working in the new economy revealed working lives that are harried, episodic, and insecure. Like many others, he traces the origins of this new economy back to the 1970s. It was then that the post-World War II economic order of national firms, strong unions, and secure jobs began to unravel. The critical change, Sennett says, was the removal of the controls on the international movement of capital that had been the hallmark of this old order. There was suddenly a flood of capital released into the global marketplace. And capital looking for investments, which was now able to flow more easily across borders. And this capital has been called by the economist uh, Bennett Harrison, uh, impatient capital. It was not investing in firms for the sake of long-term profits, but it was buying and share, selling on uh, share price. So what investors wanted were signs of change in firms uh, that would boost up their short-term share price, whether or not in the long run this was profitable. And uh, the extreme example of that is, of course, the dot-com boom and bust of the late 90s, where you know, firms which had nothing <laughs> uh, were trading at you know, multiples of you know, price-earnings ratios of, of a zillion to one. And that economic reality remains in place. One, another way to measure it is that 
pension funds, which are huge investors and ought to be conservative, quite conservative. In 1965, the average length of time and investment, a pension fund held in investment, tend to be about 45 months. And by 2005, it had sunk down to 4.2 months. So even these stabilizing forces, supposedly, of the equities markets, became short-term players. And you can understand the result. If a firm is run for the sake of its share price rather than its long-term viability, you behave in very different ways because your your spectators and your owners are not in it for the long term. There is also something about, on the ideological side, about the intervention of a whole new set of technologies, which gave people the notion that things are changing very, very rapidly, and we've got to go with the flow of the latest thing because of this enormous transformation of not just the computer, but microelectronics and manufacturing. And I mean, we've lived through a, a, an extraordinary technological revolution, and that has ideological effects. People want to get with the latest gadgets, so on. It's changed consumption patterns as well, because people are increasingly willing to throw out perfectly serviceable objects like computers for the sake of new computers, most of whose bells and whistles the ordinary consumer doesn't use and doesn't need. The changes Richard Sennett details here have combined to create what he calls the new capitalism. What he thinks this capitalism has done to those who occupy its precarious workstations is summed up in the title of his first book on the subject, The Corrosion of Character. It corrodes people's sense of having agency. That's what I mean by character, that you feel that you have agency in your life, that you are able to act in such a way to make a difference in your own experience. It's not personality. That's a fundamental fact of character, that you have the agency to make a difference in what happens to your life. Nobody, no adult can believe you could be in control of it, but it's that what you do matters. I'll give you an example to this. You have agency in a bureaucracy that rewards service if you stay with that firm for 20 years. If the firm is going to reward service blindly, maybe not very much, but if the terms of the reward structure are you stay around and each year your salary is going to go up a bit. Simply by staying around you, you are doing something which organizes your life. What's happened in these firms is that rewards for service are almost negatives. People who, when we interviewed human relations officers in some of these firms, they would say, you know, when I see on somebody's CV that they've been in one place for the last six years, I think, what's the matter with that person? You know, are they stuck? Are they ingrown? Are they dependent? Are they needy? <laughs> Why haven't they chased opportunity? Well, if you have that mindset, you're not rewarding service, and you're denying 
Somebody who's just putting in their time, they're, they're working hard, they're doing what they're told to do. You're not going to give them agency in that, uh, that sense. Richard Sennett's research for the corrosion of character, as he mentioned earlier, consisted of interviews with accountants, computer programmers, and people working in highly globalized service industries. In this sense, the book is concerned with a significant but still limited sector of the economy. But Senate is also interested in the ways in which the culture of the new capitalism has spread to every workplace, and who, by now, has not been affected by its rhetoric of flexibility, innovation, and constant change. But what concerns Senate most of all is the way in which this new economy has been taken as a model for public service reform. I think there's a system that is most pernicious when these models of this new economy are brought in the welfare state and we begin treating teachers, nurses, and doctors as though they're task labor rather than professionals. And the horrible thing about Western European polities in the last 15 years is they've taken this aspect of the private labor force and they've made that their model of reform so that you try and run a hospital as though it were an investment bank, you know? You keep all your options open. And that's the gravity of this thing, and that's what I try to get at in respect in a world of inequality. You cannot run a welfare state modeled on this kind of capitalism. It's a disaster. It, and we saw it with nurses, we saw it with lots of public service workers. They are minded to public service, but they're put into a regime where they're being treated as though they're casualized employees. The reason this has happened, according to Richard Sennett, is that politicians were desperate. The welfare states constructed after World War II were beset by the 1970s by runaway costs, tax revolts, and a widespread feeling that public services had become inefficient, unresponsive, and terminally bureaucratic. The new capitalism appeared to offer a new model of public service. The sheer dynamism and short-termism of this has, I think, been seemed very sexy to politicians who are thinking about how to rejuvenate political institutions. You know, they see in this cutting edge of the economy this enormous turnover and change, and I think, well, if there's life there, <laughs> we should have the same kind of life in running a medical system or, or in running a university. But it's a model that can often do enormous amounts of Harm. Richard Sennett assesses some of this harm in his book, Respect in a World of Inequality. The book is by no means an endorsement of the old welfareism. Sennett, remember, spent his early years in a Chicago housing project, and he's well aware of the passivity that welfare bureaucracies can induce. Nor is the book in any sense doctrinaire, Senate's strength is in telling stories and teasing out people's experiences, not in producing alternative blueprints for reform. But he is quite clear that a society of mutual respect cannot take its models of public service from the private economy. 
it's important to understand that this drove in the United States uh, liberal reformers. It isn't just conservatives. It's people like Blair or Clinton who believed in using this model of this new economy for the welfare sector. And um, the idea is often that a kind of caricature between stodgy bureaucracy, which happens to be just and delivers service for everyone, and this new, new thing, which is going to perform the hat trick of costing less while delivering more. Well, you can't do that. And uh, in Britain, this is now a very bitter source of reaction to the Labour Party, because it's basically what is called reform of the welfare state has been a deformation of something Brits hold dear, particularly the National Health Service. It's a source of real pride for people in Britain. They're willing to pay more for it if they get good quality care. And what they're getting is a kind of managerialism that's diminishing care on the ground. Endless reforms, you know, the new, new version of the NHS every couple of years. And you can understand what it is. It's on the notion that you constantly have to reinvent government. That's a notion that's derived from corporations that are constantly reinventing themselves. The contrast would be something like this. In the Jeffersonian idea of government, every generation, once every 30 or 40 years, you need radical reform as a generation lives through the changes in its life cycle of a certain way of governing itself. And then a new generation comes along and begins to adapt for itself. You have constant evolution, but what you don't have is reform for the sake of avoiding routine, which is basically what these new reforms have been. The reason this is dysfunctional bureaucratically is that it takes a long time for any change to bed in as a practice. So it becomes tacit knowledge. You know what to do, you see how the thing works, and you know how to practice it at your fingertips, as it were. When reformers are afraid of routine itself, their fear prevents the bedding in of change. And there's a management speak word that migrated from the new economy into politics, which is called ingrown. Ingrown means something that doesn't have much pizzazz, you know, people are stuck in routine, i.e. Not, not much is going to happen to the value of such a company, even though it's profitable. Next year it'll make profits just the way it made it this year, you know. <laughs> That's become a negative in the new economy, being ingrown in that way. Betting in is seen as a threat to measuring institutional value in terms of share price. It's, you know, everything is put on the notion of do people give this a new value in the market? Well, you can't use that in the public services. You must have things bet in. People have to understand, if, as it were, the craft value of a change. How do you transform into a kind of craftsmanship where it's in your fingertips, where you know how to do it? And that's why I've been such a critic of, of this system. Richard Sennett's sense that ability is in your fingertips and not just in your head 
harks back to his own training as a cellist. Sennett says that he derived much of his sociological standpoint from his experience as a musical performer. And one thing a musician understands is the value of repetition and routine. Freedom in playing begins only when the underlying ability has become habitual through endless practice. The rhetoric of the new economy downplays habit, established character, settled practice. It doesn't want people whose dignity and right to respect derives from their standards, their achievements, or their history. It wants flexibility, not character. The next thing, not the already established thing. One of the best ways to resist this ethos, Richard Sennett has come to think, is through a defense of craftsmanship, and that is to be the subject of his next book. The essence of craftsmanship, whether it's manual or mental, is doing something well for its own sake. And the kicker in this system is that doing something well for its own sake is not economically productive in this system. The issue of commitment to doing a particular kind of work well because you want to develop your skills over a long period of time, really want to become a master of something, doesn't have an institutional support. I mean, there's a system that privileges potentiality over craftsmanship, what might be over what has been absorbed, bedded in, and, and mastered. I think the, the way to think about this is, if you want to devote your life to becoming a good accountant, are you working in a system that wants to benefit from that kind of professionalism or not? Do they want to benefit from your commitment to become as good an accountant as you can? And the answer is no. Respect for craftsmanship is one of the standards against which Richard Sennett measures the new culture and finds it wanting. In his most recent book, the culture of the new capitalism. He also mentions two others. The second is narrative. Do the experiences of working life accumulate, connect, and cohere into a story one could conceivably tell about oneself? And the last is usefulness. Does what we do matter to ourselves and to others? Neglect of these three standards, he thinks, is creating an ever more superficial culture but this also gives him reason to hope. A regime which provides human beings no deep reasons to care about one another, he wrote in The Corrosion of Character, cannot long preserve its legitimacy. He says the same today. If people become increasingly dissatisfied with this system, they'll change it. I don't think, you know, this is a fate that we have to live the way people live under this system. And how that'll happen, I don't know. You know, when people really get unhappy with the way they're living, they figure it out for themselves. They don't, they, you know, <laughs> human beings are, are, are able to do that without help from intellectuals. But what I've tried to challenge in this last book is the, no, the notion that it's necessary that we follow in this path that more and more of the way of the kinds of work we do has to be modeled on this. That's what I've tried to 
to destabilize. That this is, this is a good way to do things. It isn't a good way to do things. It's not a notion of looking backward or you know refusing to accept the future. That's already giving the game away to flexible capitalism. It's one way to run a world of work, but it's not the only one. Uh, God did not tell us that we must uh, run an economy full of short-term jobs. There's no higher authority that's laid this down on us. So my notion is that the more people can feel that they have choice about this, that they can have agency about this, that they can refuse this path, they can find another. We're not quite there yet. We still think it's possible to manage within the confines of the system as it is. Over the course of time, because this is not a system that can deliver, I think people will start to resist. If you looked in the United States in 1931 and said, would we ever have something like the New Deal? Most people would say, come on, what is this? You know, what are you talking about? Pie in the sky. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's something that's quite wrong about seeing that only the powerful have the, have the possibility of, of change and that the others are just mere pawns and they've got to accept it because it's fate. There's something quite wrong about that and it's unreal. On Ideas, you've listened to the second and concluding part of Flesh and Stone, our profile of American sociologist Richard Sennett. The program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Dave Field, Richard Handler, and Liz Nage. If you'd like an audio or a print copy of this program, if you'd like to find out what's coming up on Ideas, or if you'd like to learn more about CBC Podcasting, just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 and to Sirius Satellite Radio for the hourly news. <laughs>